It's not about alienating one generation to make another generation happy. It's about how can we find generational cohesiveness? How can we bring on young people and really tap into the energy, the uh, excitement, and also the new ideas that they bring to the workforce? But at the same time, how do we keep our seasoned people on board? How do we keep them engaged? How do we keep them feeling like they are contributing and not alienate them? Because we can't just have one generation running the show. We're always better if we have a mixture. Welcome to the Social Complex Podcast, where we are diving into the complex impact and influence of social media on brands, brains, and the bigger picture of our modern world. Here's your host, Hillary Applegate. Millennials are so entitled and Gen X, so cynical. Baby boomers, technophobes. Gen Z, addicted to their phones. We've all heard stereotypes about different generational groups, maybe even believed them ourselves. Millennials were both the last generation that grew up without the internet and the first digitally native generation. Gen Z consists of the first connected kids who never knew the world without internet. Technology has become a core differentiating factor for each generation in how they use, adopt, communicate, and rely on mobile and web devices. And just like each generation approaches the world differently, they also approach social differently. But how has technology defined each generation and what can we predict about future generations adoption of digital media in the coming decades? Enter Megan Johnson. Megan Johnson is a generational expert and humorist. With 25 years of experience studying and speaking about generational differences, she brings a wealth of knowledge and understanding about the intergenerational dynamics. She has worked with countless brands and organizations to help break down the cross-generation conflicts in the workplace, helping leaders to better understand and communicate with those who approach the work environment differently than they have in the past. During the 1990s, while working for companies like Quaker Oats, Kraft Foods, and Xerox, Megan often heard negative comments about Gen Xers. Things like, they're all slackers, gold-collar workers, and it's the Beavis and Butthead generation were not uncommon. Being a Gen Xer herself, Megan knew that those terms were unfair, untrue, and hurtful, so she began researching small and large businesses to debunk generational myths and discover the most effective ways to solve multi-generational clashes. That research gave birth to thousands of generational presentations and to her best-selling book, Generations, Inc., from boomers to linksters managing the friction between generations at work. She has been quoted by Chicago Tribune, CNNMoney.com, and U.S. News and World Report. She also has been heard on ABC Talk Live, NPR, and profiled on Condé Nast. Megan gives audiences a chance to not only laugh at their own generation and the other ones, but flourish in the presence of others. In this episode, we get into digital differences of generations today, similarities and differences among the different groups, what we're seeing with the emerging Generation Alpha, and how technology is going to further define generational differences. Leave your assumptions at the door and let's dive in. Megan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited. I have been looking forward to this since you and I chatted on the, the phone the other day. When I searched for a speaker for this episode, I typed in generation expert. I was like, I don't even know if that is a real career or a real person. But lo and behold, you showed up on my feed. I looked at your stuff and I said, this is exactly the person that would be perfect for an episode talking about 
this topic in particular. Well, I'm so excited to find out all those Google AdWords I buy is finally paying off. I would say that it is paying off. Also, I think it's because you're located in Phoenix. And since I have the tie with Phoenix, I'm sure that it decided that you might be the best of the best candidate for us to talk to. We're just going to give you Arizona people. Here you go. I'll take them. I love Arizona people. So tell us about you, your background, who is Megan Johnson, and how did you fall into this career? Oh my gosh, that's such an exciting question for me, audience of one. Yeah, so I uh, graduated actually from Arizona State University back in 1993, entered the corporate world. I started working for Quaker Oats and sales and craft foods. It was everything that you know I had gone to college for. Back in that day, you went to college, you know, your advice from your parents was you go to college, get a degree, try hard, get some good grades, and recruiters will come onto campus and they're going to look at you and that's the way to get your foot in the door. And it all played out just like that. And we're in the middle of a recession in 1993 where other people my age were not getting jobs. They're going back to what we all, you know, called the Mick job, you know, back to working the fast food, the retail jobs and the brick and mortar shopping stores. And I got this job and I was just uh, I was thrilled. My parents were thrilled. I mean, you know, everyone like jumping around. Yay. And I was very excited to work with this company, Quaker Oats. I mean, I knew of Quaker Oats and almost everybody knows about Quaker Oats. And oh God, I hated the job. I hated it so hard. I just couldn't stand it. And one reason I didn't like it, well, one, one, um, and this is again, a sign of that I was young and choosing a job and not really investigating much just because I was coming from the place of I'm young, people my age aren't getting jobs. This is a really good corporate job. It was not a good, it was not a good corporate culture fit for myself. Obviously, hindsight being 2020, I would have done better at a smaller, more entrepreneurial job. But I started at this job. And you know, one of the complaints people would or my manager would tell me is that um, you know, your hair is too big. At the time I had big hair. Your hair is too big. I get comments like that. And so I spent a couple of years in the corporate world, um, again, with Quaker Oats, and then I was with Kraft Foods. And I found that the, I seemed to be struggling with the same issues at every job. And part of the reason, part of my struggle was that in both situations, my managers were quite a bit older, which we would now call a baby boomer. You know, they were my parents' age, which really at, at the time was not that old, but they're older than I was and they're baby boomers. And it, it was not all their fault. And it wasn't all my fault but it was definitely a generational miscommunication. And they had just different ideas on what motivated me. They had different ideas on how to communicate. And on the flip side, I didn't really understand corporate politics. I didn't really understand how a corporate environment was different than like I had worked part-time retail jobs, which I loved working at, in clothing stores. So there was a, it was just a kind of a generational clash and I began looking at what it took to work with 20-somethings because I thought, I can't be alone in this. And at the same time, in the media, there was lots of press about how hard 20-somethings were to work with. And the term Generation X was coined by a guy who named Douglas Copeland who wrote a book about Generation X, and he coined this term. And so I thought, we're not that hard to work with. And in 1997, I began speaking about how to work with Generation X how to work with the 20-something. And then as most 20-somethings, or at least for me, you always think you're going to be the youngest person in the room, and then that changes. And the millennials started rolling in. But at the time, we called them Generation Y. 
and because they followed X and several other reasons. And so the, my, my presentation and also my research, it evolved and started to include all the different generations. Baby boomers continue to stay in the workforce. You know, back in the 90s, we were thinking baby boomers were going to retire fairly soon, but that didn't happen because baby boomers' lives were different. That's where my interest in, in how generations worked and how generations interacted, that's how I, I, it sort of lit my fire. And that's why I call myself a generational enthusiast. And um, I began researching and speaking and writing about the generations back in 1997. And it was, it's interesting because I remember thinking, is anything else going to happen that could change? And of course, so much happens that changes and influences a generation, not just the gen- what I call generational signposts, but also just that stage you are at in life. Your expectations are different. So that's how I began my interest in generations and looking at what makes a generation tick. And I always like to tell audiences, it's not about alienating one generation to make another generation happy. It's about how can we find generational cohesiveness? How can we bring on young people and really tap into the energy, the uh, excitement, and also the new ideas that they bring to the workforce? But at the same time, how do we keep our seasoned people on board? How do we keep them engaged? How do we keep them feeling like they are contributing and not alienate them? Because we can't just have one generation running the show. We're always better if we have a mixture. So that's probably a long answer to your short question. That was fascinating. I am over here smiling ear to ear because this is so interesting to me and I could talk about it all day. What would you say are some of the biggest friction points that you see when you're working with that intergenerational conflict? Where do the different generations kind of rub each other's nerves or miss the mark when they're communicating with one another? I would say that prior to COVID, one of the biggest generational complaints I would hear from at the time millennials, because they were at the time pretty much the the youngest generation in the workforce. Now we've got generation Z that's entering the workforce. But millennials big complaint was, I want flexibility in how I work. I want to work from home. I want to work remotely. And organizations, many organizations said, well, that just can't be done. And true, there are some jobs even during COVID and post COVID, there's some jobs you have to be there. I mean, you, you can't work in a warehouse remotely, you have to be at the warehouse. But what we found after COVID, obviously, was that there was a lot of jobs that we thought what once had to be done in a physical building could be done remotely. And organizations said prior to COVID, well, we just don't also have the technology to support you in working remotely. And then that changed really quick too. So what I think now though, interesting enough is this question coming out of COVID with generations is what's it gonna look like moving forward? Because I think a lot of younger people, and again, because we all kind of got thrown into this working remotely with COVID, I think a lot of younger people struggled, you know, with childcare and basically kind of having to run their household and work from home. And I've also talked to lots of older people, baby boomers and Gen Xers, that they liked the working from home. They liked that, but they also miss seeing people, missing their coworkers, their peers, and they miss that connection. So I think that's going to be an interesting moving forward, what that hybrid situation is going to look like. But currently, a lot of uh, generational conflict comes from younger people wanting to make changes. So they come on board, they see that there are areas for improvement, change, and so they challenge the status quo. 
And the old guard, that'd be myself included, we pushed back. Oh no, this is the way we've always done it. And it works. The way we do it works. So, and when we say things like, you know, we don't have time to investigate or make the change. You know, we're just coming out of COVID. Can't handle any more change. Um, so I, that's kind of the, the biggest conflict is that younger people come on board and they say, all right, let's, let's, why can't we do this differently? The funny thing is, and I, I, I like to point this out to audiences, is what we're saying about each generation, it, it has not changed. And I, I point out that the way we're describing younger people today was the same way we described millennials, because as I said, millennials are no longer the youngest people in the room. Same thing we, we described Gen X, my generation, and it's the same way we describe baby boomers, my parents' generation. And that, you know, they resist change, they want instant gratification, they don't want to pay their dues. And I always point out to audiences, and I, I show several magazine examples, that this is not new. We, we use the same words to describe every younger generation as they enter the workforce, the marketplace, even our own homes. And I like to tell people, I said, what we're really describing is a youthful generation. And the definition of youthful that I use means new. They have a new different set of experiences than you do. And I call the experiences in the book I wrote in my presentations, I call the experiences generational signposts. And that's an event or phenomena that's specific to your generation. And it influences the way that you perceive communication. It influences the way that you um, interpret the way an employer should treat you. But really clusters of people born during a certain time frame have experienced similar situations and can be differentiated from other generations. It's not an attempt to generalize everybody or put anybody in a box. It's just an attempt to explain how the economy or certain social phenomena may be impacting certain groups of people. So let's talk about Gen Z, because I think that a lot of employers and brands have a little bit of an anomaly when it comes to Gen Z, and they're also the most social category of any even historically it doesn't I don't even know if it's going to be a youth thing as much as it is just a technology what are some of those signposts that you would identify for Gen Z that are going to dictate how that generation navigates so they are a fairly large generation there's 74 million of them that's that's a large generation they're going to be different than millennials and that most of millennials, many millennials, less than 10% of millennials have a non-baby boomer parent. So I tell audiences, millennials have the same parents I do, baby boomers. Baby boomers are parents of both Gen Xers and millennials. But Generation Z, many of their parents are Gen Xers like myself, or even maybe some older millennials are parents to the Generation Z. But um, this is the first truly digital generation. And we have talked for several years about millennials and their their dependency on technology and how they're addicted to technology. But Generation Z is really truly the first digital generation because there are millennials in the room who maybe remember um, dial-up internet. You know, you'd have a family feud. Oh, I remember. <laughs> so you'd listen to that noise and you'd wait. You'd wait. I mean, compared to when the first web page I opened up as a uh, Gen Xer, I actually walked away because it, it, it was going to take about an hour to, to download the first web page that I ever like <laughs> went to. I like went away and had lunch and came back. I'm like, wow, look at this. This is amazing. Um, but so you have millennials that remember dial up. You'll have millennials that uh, prob- that could have read from a textbook, had a physical book. 
You could have millennials that uh, learned to write cursive, but Generation Z, did you learn to write cursive? I did painfully. I'm not good and it did not stick. I print. I print to this day. My cursive really looks like maybe something happened to to me, like my I'm blind or something and I don't know what oh, I'm doing. Oh yeah. Oh. It ain't it ain't pretty. No. No, my cursive <laughs> is horrible. So I, I actually, I, so I print, but so I brought this up a handful of years ago. I was on a, a radio show, uh, women truckers, like, you know, big semi truckers, women truckers radio show. And I brought up this idea that the younger generation is not going to learn cursive. That's the generation Z is not learning cursive. I had a caller call in. He was so angry that I suggested that people should not learn cursive. I said, I'm not suggesting people shouldn't learn cursive. I'm telling you, it's not going to be taught anymore. Right. It ain't going to happen, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it was just, how can people be, people will be so ignorant by not learning cursive. I said, I, I'm, not, I'm not, I'm just telling you, it's not going to be taught anymore. Just like, I mean, I took a typing class with a typewriter in school. People mm-hmm. don't have a typewriter taking a typing class anymore. So back to Generation Z, I will like go on these tangents. You just need to roll me back. Oh no, please keep going. So they are truly the first digital generation. They could have completely never ha- held a physical textbook. They're family probably didn't have a landline, had high-speed internet. And, and, and when I'm speaking this, I'm, I'm, I'm talking predominantly in the United States. And they didn't learn cursive. And much to the upset of my financial clients, they don't have a checkbook. And so I, I like to tell financial people, you know, what's the point of trying to incentivize someone to open a checking account by offering them a free box of checks? Which is yeah. one reason why I opened my first checking account because they gave a free box of checks. That doesn't matter anymore to Generation Z because many of them are, you know, shying away from the traditional banking way anyways. So they're the first digital generation. They are also reconsidering higher education because of college debt. So they looked at millennials who came out of school, uh, higher education, with lots of college debt. And then for many millennials, they came out of school and had the Great Recession, which is a generational signpost, impacted each generation differently. And uh, so they're reconsidering going higher education, which is a great news for the trades. So, you know, going to learn to become an air conditioner, heating, plumbing, electrician, all those trades which have were starving for people when the millennials were going to school because there was a different idea. You, you went to higher education. Now this generation is looking at like, hey, do I necessarily need to go to higher education? Especially when I can go to a trade school, learn a well-paying craft and have a recession-proof job. So they're reconsidering higher education, which now kind of has put the question politically about free education and what can we do to get younger people to come to school and make it affordable and make it doable. This generation also grew up with a shared economy. So this whole idea of Ubers and I remember when I was reading about it and began talking about it back when Uber first came around, you know, Uber's the one that people recognize the most when you say shared economy that um, it's like, wow, you know, like, who would do that? Why would you use your own personal car when you could ride mm-hmm. in a cab? I mean, why would you do that? So they grew up with a shared economy. And then they're also, they are the most ethnically diverse generation and they expect to see ethnic diversity and gender diversity in um, the leadership in the organizations that they work for. So you could talk about, hey, we're ethnically diverse, but unless they see that diversity in the leadership, it's a disconnect. 
So you, you have to just show me that, yes, you do respect that kind of ethnic diversity. And they are also this whole idea of gender and this gender question, and they expect that kind of diversity in the work environment. We're not having that discussion about gender like we do now. Which I was recently, this, like two years ago, I was on a call, a volunteer for Planned Parenthood, and I was on a call, and they said, you know, say your name and what pronoun you identify with. And I had never been at, I mean, like, that was a new one for me. Like, that was new for me at the time. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. That was something. I mean, I, you know, and I remember, you know, so, and most of the room was younger people, and they're all like, they knew what was going on. And there was one, there was one woman on the call who was quite a bit older than I am. She goes, I don't even know what you mean by this. She said, my name is Susan. That's who I am. <laughs> you know? But now those kind of comments, I mean, you see it in your signature and your email, you see it on your LinkedIn profile, that we're, we're used to that. You know, who are you? Mm -hmm. He, she, them, you know, we're, we're now used to that. So Generation Z has grown up with that. They are also, um, they will choose a city before choosing a job, which I think is fascinating. Because you jump back to my generation, Generation X, if the job you got was in a different city, you went where they told you to go. You're going to be moved to San Francisco. Now with Generation Z, and this is, I think, partially a result of what happened during COVID, we saw that many jobs could be done from many different places. Mm -hmm. Again, not all jobs can be done from remotely, but many jobs. So Generation Z will be looking at a city before choosing a job. And when I'm talking to groups about how do you recruit Generation Z, I said, so you want to make sure that you are like participating in the chambers of commerce, anything that promotes your city and shows what your city has to offer. Now, as an employer, it's beyond just like the employment package you're offering. Your city has to offer something. Your, mm -hmm. Is your city an appealing place to live? Is it affordable? Is it you know, pedestrian friendly? Is it, you know, pet friendly? Is it, you know, how, what are you doing about climate change? And that's another thing. So Generation Z is very focused on causes, what's going on around. I always say millennials put their money where their mouth is. Millennials are very environmentally focused and they want to work for organizations that care about their environmental impact. And they want to do business with organizations that care about the environmental impact and, you know, let you know what they're doing. But Generation Z, I mean, they want to know what organizations are doing regarding things that in the past companies would have shied away from, that it's too hot of a political topic. So, you know, Black Lives Matter, the environment, women in the workforce, um, hashtag me too. And I think also now Ukraine is going to be a big one. What are organizations doing regarding these causes that are very important to me? Are there actions in aligned in my belief system? Different than me, a Gen Xer, who I honestly didn't even, I didn't even think about that when I chose a job and worked for a company. I mean, I cared about those things. I, I cared about the environment. I cared about all those things. But it never even occurred to me that I should think about what my employer was doing. It wasn't even a part of your consideration factor. No. In fact, yeah. I, I interviewed for, and I'm not a smoker. I just, you know, that's not my thing. But I did interview with, um, oh gosh, the company that, I think Philip Morris, that owns Marlboro Cigarettes. And I remember they, the, they smoked during the interview. My eyes are running. My nose is running. But selling cigarettes, that would have been fine with me. Again, it was just, it didn't even occur to, I mean, I'm not a smoker. It didn't even occur to me that that's a, 
That's a disconnect. Again, that's a reflection of how my young age, not really thinking about a good cultural fit, whereas I think Generation Z is thinking a little bit more about that cultural fit. Does this organization support my belief system? That's really fascinating. Do you think that social media has had more of an impact, though, because of that transparency and that extra layer of how they can interact with brands? Because they can hold brands much more accountable online and band together for a specific cause. Yes, I love it because this generation really does want to have a conversation about the brands that they use. I mean, the conversation I had about the brands I used when I was that age was if, if it was a, you know, a prestigious brand. That's all you cared about, or that's all I cared about at the time. But this generation, yeah, they do want to talk about, you know, the, the, the products I'm using, are they being brought to market ethically? And how do they interact with my life? Do I like using them? How am I using them? And they want to talk about it with also other people who are the users. Like, tell me how you're using this body lotion. Tell me how you like it. Tell me how you enjoy it. You know, what do you, how are you using it? And they want the manufacturer, the, the brand to connect with them about that. Tell me about, mm -hmm. you know, what this is and tell me how you use it and tell me what you know about me. Gen Z wants the, you know, brand to tell me what you know about me and how this works for me in my life. And I think this is an exciting conversation because it does hold companies more accountable for their actions and their behavior in bringing brands to market. And in sharp contrast, let's talk about how baby boomers want to interact <laughs> with brands. <laughs> Let's go to the other side. Oh, you know, baby, baby boomers are like, I mean, they really truly were the first media darling. You know, prior to the baby boom, we didn't talk a lot about generations because, again, it was a different cultural climate in the United States. So here come baby boomers. And it was, dude, this huge, just like it says, huge boom in the birth rate. And the United States was experiencing incredible prosperity post-World War II. And uh, we were, you know, in a unique situation that we were, you know, we didn't have any physical damage on our country, you know, like other countries had quite a bit of physical damage during World War II. So we were in this unique position. And so we experienced this huge, huge boom of, of births and also this huge, you know, economic boom. And so I really baby boomers are, I think what you see a little bit more brand loyal that they will use something because maybe their parents used it. So I think about my grandfather. He worked for Procter & Gamble. And so you bought Procter & Gamble products in his house. And my dad likes to joke that he would wear Procter & Gamble clothes growing up. But my parents also then continued buying Procter & Gamble because it was baked in. And, and there wasn't a lot of question about how the products were made. Now, I'm not insinuating that baby boomers don't care because baby boomers also did push forward huge changes in the late 60s and the early 70s when it comes to equality and um, uh, especially women in the workforce. Baby boomers really pushed that through. So I'm not insinuating they don't care. It's just that baby boomers don't necessarily desire to have that same conversation with the brands that they use online. Now, if they have a problem, they want it to be taken care of, but it's not that same intimate relationship that I, I believe many Gen Zers have with the brands and with their fellow users. I do run into that a lot with some of the clients that I work with when we're 
trying to connect with different generations. And we do have a solid fan base here and there of, you know, baby boomers for some accounts. And they really like to observe, but they're not big engagers. They don't really interact too much. It's more of a way for them to observe. And then if they have a complaint, we'll get that through. But for the most part, they're observers. Yeah. And they're huge readers. So baby boomers will read a blog about the product. So I don't want to insinuate that baby boomers don't use technology. In fact, I always point out to audiences that one of the generational uh, missteps many young people make is we assume baby boomers won't embrace new technology. So they use technology and they use blogs and they use um, information online to read about or learn something about their brand. But you're right. They're not necessarily looking to have a conversation about it or mm-hmm. have the brand come, you know, tell them, you know, this is the ways you can use it based upon your shopping behavior, based upon your likes and dislikes. This is the way you could use this brand. This is the way it fits into your life. That's not what drives a lot of baby boomers in their communication style when it comes to brands. So Thinking from a generation standpoint, not necessarily from an age standpoint, you know, not thinking about them from like young versus old or anything like that. Which two generations would you say are the most similar? (laughs) So I think what's interesting is it kind of does this little skip. And it sort of it reminds me of um, when people would say that your children always get along well with your grandparents, the grandparents, because there's this common enemy of the parent. So, but what I, what I hear a lot of younger people stating is that the traditional generation, now this is, these are my grandparents, people born before 1945. And I use the word romanticized because we call the traditional generation, the greatest generation. They're an amazing generation, but they weren't perfect. Nobody's perfect. But this idea of that you you put yourself up by your bootstraps, it's hard work. I think Generation Z really likes that idea, likes that image. I always joke, joke, though, the forgotten generation is Generation X. That's my generation. We are the forgotten generation. And one reason is because we're just so small. According to managers and employers, we're one of the most engaged generation in the workforce we're there. We're kind of in the middle of our, you know, our careers. But I always tell audiences, if this were the Brady Bunch, we're jam. <laughs> we're the forgotten middle child. Nobody wants to go to prom with us. And one reason is because we're sandwiched in between these two huge generations, millennials and baby boomers. So what you see is I often the younger generation kind of romanticizing maybe a couple generations earlier And I always say every generation brings a lot of strengths to the party and a lot of challenges to the party. And that's just part of the deal. But uh, yeah, I think younger generation really relate to the the older generation's idea of, you know, tenacity. You stick to it and you, you know, you thrash it out and you build what you want. I also think it's interesting that Generation Z is looking to be a very entrepreneurial generation. And we'll see how that pans out. Yeah, that is true. Do you think that was also fueled by COVID? I think partially. Many Gen Zers who um, were in the workforce when COVID hit were in a lot of the jobs that were uh, let go. So a lot of the service jobs like in, a, in hotels, restaurants, and those were the jobs that were let go because, you know, restaurants and hotels and all that stuff closed. So they're kind of, the, many of them were left to their own devices and to, you know, start their own thing. 
and I interviewed a, uh, a young woman. She's in high school. She's a senior now, but I interviewed her last year where she owns a charcuterie business. Good for her. I know. I've actually hired her a couple of times. It's amazing. But yeah, she started the charcuterie business. And so, you know, she, it, was a, it was a job that she said I could do on my time. And also, you know, it was up to me to find clients. So I wouldn't, couldn't be fired. And uh, she actually created a whole um, line of how-to videos, how to create so how to create charcuterie and a whole training system that as a person is like, oh, I want to learn how to build a charcuterie tray. I can log on and purchase one of her videos on how to learn how to build a charcuterie Good for tray. Her. I know. That's amazing. I love that. Isn't it amazing? I talked to another young man who started, he got his real estate license while he was in college. And, you know, started selling real estate while he was in college from a dorm room. (laughs) Okay, so we're talking about the hustler mentality that you're going to get much more with this Gen Z. I think so. Just because we've realized how, um, just how things can change really quickly, you know, when it comes to employment and employers. Now, on the flip side, you have a lot of Gen Zers that are really looking for security, you know, to see this happen, they're looking for an employer that, that, you know, gives them some security. And where we, we associated with millennials, we, you know, we said millennials aren't loyal, millennials quit their jobs, you know, before lunchtime, which I also point out that started actually back in Black Monday, the recession. Millennials crawled so that Gen Z could run. Right. (laughs) So, um, I think really a lot of Gen Zers, though, are looking for some kind of security. And so what Gen Zers will do and companies that take advantage of this are smart is that Gen Zers are like, okay, so if I come to work at your organization, what kind of opportunities will you give me? So they will look at a lateral move as a promotion. Like, okay, so I'm in the finance department now. Where else can I go to help build my skill set? And so mm-hmm. companies that say, okay, organizations say, all right, you're, you know, You'll spend some time here and then we're going to move you to sales. If you allow that generation to build their lattice, and I say it's not about a corporate ladder, it's about a corporate lattice. You let them build that lattice, connections, experiences, that speaks loudly to Generation Z. What's the signpost, going back to that, that would have defined that behavior? That would be a big part of it would be also what happened with COVID, you know, that that that's I need to build my lattice. And not, okay, we're going to go back in time. So again, my generation, Gen Xers, we had Black Monday, where it was the largest one-day stock market crash the United States had ever experienced. That was in 1987. And after that happened, what companies and organizations did is they let people go. And who they were letting go at the time were mostly baby boomers. And baby boomers were coming from a place where you, you, know, you got a job with one company, you stay employed forever. The company will take care of you when it's all over. You'll give me your good working years and I'll take care of you in retirement. And then that changed. So the employment contract was rewritten in the late 80s, early 90s. So when people say, oh, you know, the younger generation's not loyal. Well, that all started back, you know, when it, when it all got shook up back in the late 80s, early 90s. So Generation X was the first generation to kind of come on board with an idea of, hey, okay, so this is a great gig, this job, but it may not last. So... You know, I might want to spend, you know, three to five years here. You know, less than five, that could look bad on your resume. And then that, that time frame just got shorter and shorter. So then millennials came on board and millennials, very experience driven. What is the experience I'm going to have here? 
And also that we had the great recession that happened to the millennials and they realized, all right, so this could be some shaky ground. Now comes generation Z. And so that time frame just gets shorter and shorter. So for me as a Gen Xer, you don't want to be anywhere less than five years because it looked bad. Millennials came on board. It was, you know, three years. And now you have very short time frames. And I was speaking to the Association of Chiefs of Police in Colorado. And one of the chiefs told me, he said, uh, like, if someone was going to be a detective, they were going to be a detective for their entire career. He said, A, that's what they wanted to do. And B, that's just the way it worked. He said, we've learned now that that just doesn't work with the younger recruits. They don't want to be in that same detective position. He said, so we rotate them out. And he says, we have some shifts, not shifts, some time duration. He said, like in burglary, we'll have a, a, you know, three to four months and then we rotate you out. So he said, so I had to change what I wanted. I, he said, it used to be I wanted, you know, a detective to be a detective their entire career. He said, now I've just changed. I want them to remain in law enforcement. So they may not be on my team, but they still are serving our community. They're still working in law enforcement. We haven't lost them. We haven't lost all the training we put into them. And so what, one thing they do is they move them to different positions. He said, now, problem is you lose good people, but then you always got, you know, you're bringing somebody new in. I see some parallels, too, when it comes to how quickly technology evolves and shifts and new things come in this space. I hear a lot in the social media world where people say that, oh, you're a social media guru. I or I keep up with all the latest trends and everything and blah, blah, blah. And in this space, you're an expert one day, but if you fall behind, you're behind the curve and you're outdated and it moves so fast. I'm wondering, is there a parallel between how quickly the social platforms are innovating to keep interest among the audiences that might lose interest similar to what they may do in their career? Do you think there's any parallel there? Well, I think what's interesting is younger people lose interest once older people get the knack of it and are like start to flood it. (laughs) You know, so saw that with Facebook Young people are all over Facebook. And see, Facebook is still very, as you know, Facebook is very still popular social media. But once the older people start getting the hang of it, like, okay, we get this now. And now we're flooding the gates. Younger people find something else and move on. That's interesting. I might think a little differently just because I wonder. It's funny. I'm actually going to be recording a podcast about is Facebook dying. So I've been trying to wrap my thoughts around that for a long time because everyone's been saying it's dying since 2014. But what I would challenge and what I see is that people who adopted it or became part of it grew up with it and then new people as they came in didn't find it as interesting. Maybe it's because as they get older and and as they enter the workforce or whatever, as they get access to phones – they're going to gravitate to what is most interesting to their generation, but they're going to hang on to that. And then that platform's going to get older with them. And then there's going to be a new platform and a new age range. So what you say is, so like, let's take um, TikTok. So where the majority of the users are younger. So they'll hang on to TikTok as they're getting older and they'll grow up with TikTok. Like I said, my step-granddaughter grew up with TikTok. And then as a new platform comes along, they will embrace it or are you saying like and, and keep TikTok as their main focus or will they fade away from TikTok and go to the next one? 
I think it's going to be more of the new, the, the younger generation is always going to be interested in where the young kids are. And they're the ones that kind of kickstart it. I think that it was college students that kickstarted Facebook and then they kind of grew with it. And then, I mean, my generation was with MySpace. MySpace died, but we also gravitated with Facebook. And a lot of people that I know are tired of Facebook, but they're still on it. So they're still using it and it has a different purpose, but They've also adopted other platforms, but they're not as quick to adopt a TikTok, whereas Gen Z loves TikTok. They've grown up with it and when it was musically, and now I'm wondering what's coming next. Like what, I I think it almost like seeds in and then grows up and then seeds in and then grows up a little bit. (laughs) Um, What I think kind of is, you know, TikTok started musically, but so did MySpace, which then, I mean, it was all kind of music focused, centered, and then became this big brouhaha. (laughs) But I will say MySpace was interesting because you could be fully anonymous. With TikTok, that's hard because your face is in it. You have to have some type of personality tied to it in some direction. Whereas, and that's the content creation generation where you're always churning out content. You're always thinking about how you can capture this or what's going to look good or what angles look best. I mean, it's really, even I have two nieces who are six and they love the Snapchat filters. (laughs) They love, and they know exactly how to use it. They know exactly how to like get to it. And I am, and they don't use Snapchat obviously, but I'm just like, you kids are going to be a fascinating generation because you're adopting everything so quickly and you understand almost when we talk about the metaverse and where that's going to be. Even myself as a millennial, I'm like, that feels so far beyond, but I could absolutely see this young, young, whoever this generation is going to become, whether they're the low end of Gen Z or the next generation, I could see them totally adopting it. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you're talking about the generation after Gen Z, Generation Alpha is what they're calling them. Oh, tell me about Generation Alpha. You know what? I would have to say, I don't know a lot about Generation Alpha, but it's, a, it's the generation following Generation Z. So there's a, like your, you said your nieces that are six years old. That's Generation yeah. Alpha. Oh, uh, let's speculate. What are they going to be like? I know. <laughs> they're good. Uh, but yeah, so what you said, like that, that they're using, the, the, I mean, very, very much like Generation Z using devices before they could talk, they're using devices. And I, I think generation, this Generation Alpha is going to grow up with a whole different set of social media platforms, as your, as your point. You know, so you got Gen Z who's very interested in TikTok and kind of brings TikTok to the social forefront. Generation Alpha will do the same. And you brought up a really valid point is that something will occur and it is really the younger generation that brings it into social awareness and kind of speeds it up. So we saw that with baby boomers when they pushed to open up the job market for women. Generation X, we saw that with actually from working from home. That started really with Generation X. I mean, when I first started working from home in the 90s, if you told people you work from home, people thought you didn't work. You sold Tupperware? (laughs) Avon. (laughs) Um, And then millennials using social media, they really brought the awareness, brought us up to speed. So Facebook being different because Facebook was was invented by a millennial, but the internet, that wasn't invented by millennials. I mean, that was invented by the older generation. 
but it was the younger generation's early embracement of it. And they bring it into the cultural focus that much faster. And they push the old people kicking and screaming, but they push them forward into using it in their daily lives. So as you made the point, we don't use it the same, but we start to use it. And a big part of that is because the younger generation says, this is the way we're going to change things. We're going to, this is, we're going to use this now moving forward. We're going to bank online, you know? And so, and that, and then that starts and they bring, you know, something like that into the cultural focus and that you, you know, and we, then eventually we all start to do it. So let's whip out our crystal balls really quickly. We love crystal balls. So let's look at the generation alpha as it is forming. And as we're seeing in real time, what are some cultural factors that you could anticipate would impact the future of how society is interacting with one another culturally, professionally, socially? What are some markers that you're seeing right now that you think are going to have an impact on how that generation operates? So I think, you know, COVID has happened. And so, I mean, they're going to be at an age where really prior to COVID, that does not even, a, that doesn't even really factor into their lives. Where Generation Z is impacted by COVID, they also, many of them remember what it was like before COVID. So you're going to have a generation, and I, I see them at the airport, you know, kids wearing masks or, you know, and that whole idea that people wear masks definitely more than we ever saw before. And so it becomes normal and it's not unusual. I mean, I remember, remember like when I had to wear a mask, the first time I had to wear a mask in the grocery store, it just felt really weird. Mm-hmm. It, it'll never have that weird feeling. And even though people become vaccinated and we get control of the situation, something else is going to happen. I mean, that's sort of the, what experts are predicting, that something else will happen. So in a world that you're going to have to think about health differently than we have thought about it. And I think that's going to be really different for this younger generation because it's just going to be the way it is. Just like it is for Generation Z, like, like why would you go into a bank, you know, when you have all your banking needs are taken care of online? This generation, I think that health portion is going to really be an impact just because there was never a time for them before, you know? So we have yet to see all the changes that will happen in the world because of what happened during COVID. We're still feeling out what that working situation is going to look like. But when it comes to travel and to how we interact with people, the fact that there could be another virus coming down the track, and that's going to be part of their lives. So the way they look at their health and the way they interact, I think will be different than previous generations. And then I think it's going to be interesting with the political climate in the United States. It's so different than it's been for previous generations. I think we see a lot more turmoil. And again, older generations might say to me, but there's always been turmoil politically. However, because of social media, we hear about it more. We know about it more. There's more hostility in that environment. And I think a lot of that is because of these discussions that people have on on social media, because there's just so much more of that information out there and they're aware of it. So I think that's going to be play a bigger part with this generation alpha. Because again, there was never a time before for them where this is how we behaved. There was a, a certain order of doing things politically and that's changed. And so I think that's going to be an impact this younger generation, Generation Alpha. Something that I always talk about when it comes, when I'm working with brands and they say, we really want to build our Facebook audience. We want to get to however many people on Facebook, blah, blah, blah. 
And now I think there's a better understanding about the volatility of social media and how there are always going to be new channels that come in. And someone asked me the other day, well, why am I going to invest in a TikTok if it's not going to be here in five years? We talked about how important that is to build because you're building that brand relationship, no matter where you are, that has to be agnostic to any platform that they're going to be moving around to. So the platform that you're going to be connecting with them on in five years probably doesn't exist today. So the best thing you can do is build that relationship, capture them elsewhere, and then pick it up on that new platform if and when they decide to go down that road. Something also that I, if I'm going to be philosophical here, is that I think that a trend that's probably going to emerge is that people are going to get a lot more selective with their crowd and what kind of information they're absorbing. Because like you said, I think a lot of that turmoil and conflict comes from being overexposed to so much noise that people just get overwhelmed and they shut down. And I think that the selectiveness of who you're following, who's in your circle, I mean, even Gen Z, have you heard of a Finsta? No. A Finsta is a fake Instagram account that they can post and say whatever they want because they're already policing what they're saying on their real account. It's a popular practice that already is showing that importance of you have to be in the inner circle in order to keep being in the inner circle. So it's like the inner circle within the inner circle. It is the inner circle within the inner circle circle of life. I think it's going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And so when I'm not sure how familiar you are with the digital media world, but are you familiar with programmatic advertising? Yes. Okay. Super popular back in 2015, 2016. It was like all anyone talked about, they were getting the lowest cost per clicks, pretty much taking a digital ad and putting it wherever your audience is, finding them on games, finding them on articles, social media, and they would claim that they got the best rate possible, but it didn't connect whatsoever. And that's where it always fell short is that it just didn't it didn't have that interactive feature. And that's something that I think is going to be fascinating to see how that plays out with Generation Alpha is how they respond to ads and how they respond to that inner circle and connectivity. Yes. No, I think you you hit the nail on the head. You know, and I think about um I think about the millennials back when they started to enter uh, the age of driving. So um, Toyota, I think it was Toyota, decided they would design a car for them. And uh, they would design it much like the car that they designed for baby boomers at the same age, who were very economical, would look all alike, look the same. And it failed. And so they went back to the drawing boards and they developed the Scion And the way they took it to market was that they would go to college campuses and hire artists to create works of art on the Scion. And this, again, this was online was available, but it wasn't as easy to order your car online as it is now. And the dealerships even had a separate entrance. So it was like this inner circle, you know, they created this inner circle. And so when you're talking about the circle within the circle, it's like, yes, it started out with making something very personalized for a generation. And I I agree with you that now it's going to be this highly defined inner circle. You're never going to have as much access as you do right now. So everyone just needs to figure it out and stop trying to shove sales down everyone's throats. (laughs) It's only going to get worse from here, people. (laughs) No, which is exciting. 
which is exciting. We love a challenge. So brands that are catering to different audiences and different generations, what can they do to make sure that they're connecting across those various populations? You really already mentioned it. It's, it's what does your user care about? Who's your biggest audience? And what is it that they care about? And where are they? So kind of back to that Scion example, they realized that, you know, just selling the car the way that they did to the baby boomers, the 16-year-old baby boomer, 16 to 20-year-old baby boomer the years prior, didn't work. So now we need to go where they are. So same thing. Where is your user and what is it that they care about that goes beyond just your product? You know, your product satisfies a need or solves a problem, but then what else does that your user care about? I think you've hit that nail on the head when you talk about the inner circle. What is it that we care about and how is it? How does it align with my belief system and what I want? And it's, it's back to not just knowing a huge demographic, it's knowing really intimately about the person that you have this relationship with. It is more of a, what I would call a, a brand buyer relationship, not just, you know, my brand and I'm trying to shove it down your throat. I 100% agree. <laughs> Good. Last question for you. When are we expecting to see generation alpha in the buyer world when are they going to become our paying consumers see i think that i think right they now but we don't really know a lot about them you know because now we're really focusing on gen z and they're buying but you talked about your nieces six years old they were six right you said six years old six yeah so they're influencing they're influencing the buying decisions at home already and also they're on online buying so yeah, they are they are in the market buying influencing decisions now. And so I think we're going to have to I think we have to speed it up and learn Terrifying. more about this younger buyer. Terrifying. How wait, what 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 age is alpha right now? Do we What know? age is alpha? All right. So I have to get out my calculator. So let's see, it's 2022, right? And yes. the last Gen Zer was born in 2012. So the alpha is 10 or younger. Oh, baby. <laughs> Buckle up, everybody. Alpha is entering the building. Alpha, alpha owns the building. Alpha already went uh, online and bought the building. Of course they did. They bought it with Bitcoin. <laughs> Can't keep up. Can't keep up. Oh, Megan, thank you so much for joining me. This was incredibly insightful. I learned so much. Oh, thank I you. This was a blast. I could listen to you talk all day. <laughs> well, my poor I'm husband wrong. does. So there I'm going to have to have you come back. <laughs> we're going to have to do a round two on this. Um, but thank you so much for coming. Please tell our audience where they can find you, where they can learn from you, and where they can connect with you. Oh, we'd love to connect. You can find me on my website. That's MeganJohnson.com. M-E-A-G-A-N Johnson. J-O-H-N-S-O-N. MeganJohnson.com. I'm on Facebook, of course. Megan Johnson Generational Humorist. I'm on Instagram. Megan S. Johnson. I'm on LinkedIn. Megan Johnson. And uh, yes, I'd love to talk, love to hear from your entire audience. Talk about generations. Answer questions. Challenge me. I love it. We love it. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you. <laughs> Have a great, great, uh, I was going to say rest of your day. Yeah, because you're a couple you hours too. ahead. Of it's cocktail hour where you are. It's five o'clock somewhere, and it, uh, that's right here in Texas. It's always five o'clock <laughs> in my heart.
Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Your support means the world to me. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, be sure to leave a five-star rating and subscribe to our show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday, bringing you various stories, deep dives, and discussions around the complexities of social media in our modern world. To follow along for more, be sure to follow us at Your Social HQ on Instagram or check out Social HQ at www.yoursocialhq.com. I'm your host, Hillary Applegate, and I'll see you back here next week. Stay sane out there. This episode of The Social Complex was produced by You Lucky Dog Podcasts. Do you love recording your podcast, but the idea of mixing and editing makes you want to pull your hair out? Well, you're in luck. Whether you're just getting started or looking for help with an already established show, You Lucky Dog Podcast can help take your content to the next level. Put your show in the hands of experienced professionals so you can focus on creating and having fun. Visit youluckydogpodcast.com and book your podcast consultation today. That's youluckydogpodcast.com.